everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and as always, uh, we are sponsored by Running Aces Racetrack and Casino, and we'll kind of get right into it. We, we're really excited. We've got Matt Matros joining us, as well as uh, several of the recognizable Rec Poker panelists. We've got Nels and Chris and Rob and John joining us, and maybe some others will kick in as well. But uh, Matt, first of all, thank you uh, for taking the time, and I know we kind of rescheduled here last minute, but uh, thanks for joining us on the call. Oh, you're perfectly welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me. And now, where are you located? Are you out in Brooklyn, or where are you at? Brooklyn, New York. Still yeah. out there, okay. Yes, never never left. I've been living here for 15 years. Well, you never left, and you've been living, you're, you're older than 15. That's true. So, Meaning I never left. What I meant by that was I never <laughs> left during the great online poker disappearance of 2010, when a lot of poker players... Online players left the United States entirely uh, or never left to go to Vegas or Atlantic City. I've, I've stayed living in Brooklyn the whole time. Nice. Okay. Well, now we got connected through Eileen Sutton. And she, yes. yeah, she's, we had her on. We were talking about women in poker. And she said, hey, do you know Matt Matros? I said, well, I don't have any connection to him. And she's like, well, let me introduce you. And you were gracious enough to come on the show. So, you know, here's kind of your chance to call out Eileen and give us embarrassing moments about her or, you know. Well, I assume I have Eileen to thank for you pronouncing my name correctly, so that works out very well. You don't. I, I, I had heard your name before, and I thought I had it right, but I, I will admit I went on uh, to uh, YouTube and watched a couple of videos about you trying to win your fourth straight bracelet, you know, whatever, and they referred to Matt Matro, so I'm like, okay, that must be it then. So I, I will admit I, then, I did a little research. By then they had it right. The first, the first couple, they, they really didn't get it most of the time, but, but by then they seemed to have it, yeah. Now, Eileen's great. I met Eileen through the New York Writers Coalition, which is a great organization based here that provides writing to underserved communities. So there's workshops in prisons here. There are workshops for homeless youth. There are workshops for senior citizens. So it's a really great organization I've been proud to work with. I don't do as much with them as I used to, but that is where I met Eileen. Oh man, that, that is fantastic. I know we have, we have a writer on the panel too. Chris Jones is a writer uh, as well. And I know that a lot of respect for you guys. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for serving the community in that way as well. Well, let's start a little bit. So uh, I know you're, you're a Yale graduate. So why don't we talk a little bit about what was your, kind of your education growing up? What were your interests? What were your, what was your major? What were you involved in going? Sure. It's almost ancient history at this point. I'm going to my <laughs> right. 20 reunion this weekend, which is crazy. But yes, I was at Yale. I was a math major, but I studied lots of other things. But math was my focus. And it was senior year at Yale when I actually started taking poker a bit seriously or even playing at all. I only learned the rules of Hold'em my senior year of college and um, read my first couple of poker books and tried it for the first time. Um, I played poker a bit in high school but really with no idea what I was doing. I needed some kind of structure to really focus my play and to make me understand that it was a game that you could actually succeed in. And I think my early experience reading poker books is partially why I continue to write poker books today. Did you, um, no, I'm a math guy too. I'm an actuary by trade and, and all that jazz, you know. Oh, you, uh, you took a lot of tests too. I, I, took a, I took a lot of tests, yeah. I um, looked in that before. I was like, wait a minute, what do I have to do? No, I know. I'm not doing this. People have asked me all the time, would you do it again? I'm like, mm, I, don't, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Especially like now parents. I'm not doing it anymore. Like I waited until I got successful and then quit it. Um, <laughs> but, but But I'm kind of curious, like from your perspective, you know, just as, as a math guy, quote unquote, and obviously right. you had other interests, you're a writer, so you have both brains both sides of the brains functioning well, but you know, did, as you got into poker, did you find it difficult to kind of realize that poker wasn't just a math 
game that obviously the psychology piece of it, because I know I struggled with that going from, okay, now I understand the math, but boy, people are winning pots without, you know, doing the right mathematical thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been drawn to both aspects of the game. When I played as a kid, it was almost purely social. I didn't even know there was a mathematical aspect. But when I did start learning the math, um, I think my, my bread and butter game when I first started out was Limit Hold'em. And honestly, if you have a, if you have a strong mathematical approach to Limit Hold'em, it, you're, you're very happy when you don't understand what the people are doing because usually that just means you can call and you're getting the right odds and everything's fine. Um, it's a little bit trickier in No Limit. No Limit doesn't lend itself quite as easily to a pure math guy to come in and dominate. Now, nowadays, the strategies are so advanced that maybe you can do that. But when I was first learning, it wasn't as simple as if you just – in Limit Hold'em, it was basically – Play these good starting hands, play them aggressively, value bet them all the time, and you will succeed against a typical limit hold'em player. There was no real equivalent for that for no limit hold'em. And so you had to go a little bit beyond just learning the sort of basic theory behind value betting and setting up your ranges and when to bluff and how to construct your good starting ranges and, and just knowing pot odds and things like that. That was all helpful, but that wasn't really enough necessarily right away although in the, i gotta say in the early days of poker it almost was because the even 15 years ago when i was first starting out the typical very good very good poker player was by today's standards a terrible poker player so <laughs> it, it was you could get pretty far just doing that but eventually you did have to go a lot further i'm really sad that i missed out on all that because i just started playing poker i don't know eight nine years ago and everybody tells me oh the game used to be so easy i'm like well hey i missed out on that whole that whole piece of it um, so, okay. So in so college, you really kind of started playing a bit more, uh, you know, kind of, kind of take me from, I guess, from college to, uh, I guess prior to 2010, you know, your first world series of poker bracelet, like were, had you started playing the world series all the way through there? Were you getting more and more serious? Like what, what did that kind of look like from a poker perspective for you? Sure. So I graduated college in 99. I worked for a software company for the next three years and I was playing poker as a hobby, going to Atlantic City as often as I could. I played in a monthly home game. Uh, when I, I went to grad school for fiction writing in 2002, and that's when I started taking poker a bit more seriously because I had, instead of having a job where I was making money, I was paying tuition, and I needed to find a way to have money again. So I took poker more seriously. I considered myself a semi-pro, quote unquote, at that time. And then toward the end of my time in grad school, I won a satellite to a satellite, and then I won that satellite, and then I used that to enter the $25,000 buy-in World Poker Tour Championship at Bellagio, and I came in third. And wow. so all of a sudden, I had this massive bankroll, and since that time, I've been, I played, I've been playing poker as my primary source of income since then, as, as far as going from 2004 to 2010 for my first bracelet. Yes, I played the World Series pretty much every summer, and I had quite a bit of success actually at the World Series before I ever won a bracelet. I had a pretty good ROI. I had a lot of limit hold'em, especially final tables. Also a uh, no limit final table in 2008, which was back then a big deal because it was a $1,500 buy-in, which had 2,600 entrants in it, and the pay structure wasn't quite as steep at the final table as it is now. So just by coming in sixth, I was able to win almost 100 buy-ins. So that was nice too. Um, and then in 2010, it, it finally did all come together for, I had, I had had almost every, I never had a second, but I had almost every other finishing position at a World Series final table before I finally won one. So um, that was very gratifying. Every bracelet is great, but there's nothing like your first one. 
Yeah, I, I've enjoyed every one of mine. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like I mean, I, it's super cool, right? I mean, obviously, 2010. So you win the you win the first bracelet. I mean, you've been knocking on the door. What, was it one of those things that for you was like, man, if I could just do this, you know, I really prove myself, or was it just, well, I'm just playing the tournament, and I know if I keep putting myself in the situation, eventually it'll happen. Like, what kind of was it? Was there an emotional piece of it for you, or is it more of a logical? Yeah, well, of course, eventually I'm going to win one if I keep putting myself and you know in the position of playing well. Was it? Did you know? Did you feel like it really put you on the map personally? Did that matter to you? Kind of what? What was all wrapped up in winning that bracelet? Yeah, it's a bit of everything. There definitely was an emotional element to it. I mean, from the logical side, I had had a lot of near misses, and I would be frustrated and talk to other really good professionals, and they all said exactly what you said. Like, look, you keep knocking on the door. Eventually, you're going to have to win one. That's how that's how the cards work. I mean, if you're playing to win, and you keep coming close, eventually you're going to have to win. Um, and I I kind of believe that, but at the same time, what had been lacking on my resume was a first place finish somewhere. I I was already kind of a known poker player by 2010. I had been writing for Card Player Magazine for quite for six years since since my WPT championship appearance in 2004. I'd had a fair bit of success online, so I was, I was known in the early online community. But I never really had a win anywhere. I never had like a big first, I had, I had won kind of these, you know, the rinky-dink $11 rebuy or whatever on PokerStars or some $100 tournament at Foxwoods, but I didn't have any major wins. And I did, it did feel like a bit of a monkey on my back. So there was, there was quite a bit of relief to it. I didn't, I didn't want to be known, I didn't want to be how, as old as I am now and I have people say that Matt Matros, he's the best player to never win a bracelet. Right. I really didn't want that to follow me around. So um, it did feel like a, a big relief. And it did feel like, okay, my resume, even if I don't play any more poker, my resume, my poker resume is, I don't want to say complete, but it's, I'm happy with it now. Yeah. Right. And that was, that was a limit hold'em event, right? It was. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that, well, at, at some point though, I wanted to win a no limit tournament. I was lucky enough to do that in 2012 because everyone kind of knew me even by 2010 as a limit specialist. And I actually made the final table of the next limit term. And I played after winning the bracelet and there was talk right then in 2010, Oh, is Matrix going to win two? And then I came in ninth because that's what happens. Uh, (laughs) But, um, but I had, I had, had had a lot of success in, in limited tournaments. And so to be able to add the no limit piece was, was pretty gratifying as well. And I think that's part of the reason I've been kind of okay backing down with the, my World Series schedule in recent years. Now, if I understood you correctly, you were sort of, uh, maybe I misunderstood, but you're kind of, you were kind of moving during that phase from limit to no limit. Was that an intentional move? Because, I mean, I look at your bracelets and, okay, three consecutive years, congratulations. I mean, amazing. But we went from limit hold'em to mixed limit, no limit hold'em to no limit hold'em. Like, I mean, the, the pattern was sort of there. Was that an intentional move or did that just kind of, was that just sort of happenstance that, uh, that was the order of things. Mostly happenstance. I mean, my WPT championship finish in 2004 was, of course, no limit hold'em. Yeah. I've been playing no limit hold'em tournaments seriously all along. Um, having said that, limit hold'em was always my bread and butter. I, I never was much of a no limit hold'em cash game player. All, almost all, 90% of the cash games I played were limit hold'em. Um, and so I, I was exclusively a no limit tournament player. Having said that, I had played no limit tournaments over the years again with some success online the i had a seventh in another wpt which didn't count as like a final table because the tv final table was six but you know i was at the final table of people playing um and 
like I said, I had that other World Series No Limit final table. So it, it wasn't like it was completely out of the blue. Um, but I didn't, like I said, I had not had the big first place No Limit finish until I won that six max tournament in 2012. So it was, it, again, it was very nice to add that to the resume. I, I will say, though, that in all three tournaments that I won, you would not believe the, the quality of the cards I got. I mean, it's, it's almost obvious in hindsight, you can't beat 1,600 people without running amazingly good. But when you actually have it happen to you, you just I just kept shaking my head like, how did I just win another huge coin flip? How did I yeah. just get it in as a three to one favorite and have it hold up again? Like, how does this keep happening? You just, it's, it's really crazy. And you, and you realize then that the knocking on the door thing really does make sense because your strong play can only take you. You're never going to, you're not going to be 2000 people in three days on your play alone. You're going to have to have the cards. Um, maybe if there's maybe in the main event, something like that, where it's seven days, you can get away with not having the greatest cards for a couple of days and then get a, get a rush on day four or whatever. But in, in a tournament that's going to be over in two or three days, you just have to have a run of cards. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if there are too many poker players out there who are like, would be great if they would just run a bit better, but there are certainly a lot of guys online players, especially who really think that I just haven't run good in brick and mortar. And that's why I've never done anything. And you kind of believe them because they have had some of these people have had a lot of success online. So, uh, it's, it's tricky when you're analyzing players based on how many bracelets they have, because really there's, an underappreciated amount of luck in those tournaments. Yeah, no, I that that's very, very well said. I mean, obviously you have to put yourself in the position, but right. I, I think that's a very it's very humble, but I also think it's very well said. I mean, I think as as math guys, understanding, you know, statistical distributions and that sort of thing, uh, you can you kind of get it. It's a little bit easier to kind of grasp those concepts that seem to escape um escape some people. Now now you mentioned that kind of now you've sort of uh, I guess pared back a bit of your you're playing, uh, playing kind of what, what's your focus area now? Talk a little bit about what are you playing? What are you writing? What's, what's kind of going on in your world right now? Sure. Well, I became a father two years ago. Oh, congratulations. Is, thank you. It's great. It's also amazingly time consuming <laughs> and amazingly expensive. So, um, that's been interesting, but, um, that because my wife works full time and because I do have flexibility in my schedule, um, a lot of the parenting fell on me, especially early on. We have a fair bit of daycare now, so it's not quite as big a burden as it was before. I was able to play a, a, one of my first tournaments in a while this past weekend, actually. Um, but, but my poker, I, I've not played the World Series either the past two years. And because I've been missing poker, though, I started at the beginning of this year to work on a book, which should be, a, it will be out by the time your listeners hear this podcast. It's called The Game Plan. And it came from this idea of I've played a lot of poker and enjoyed playing with a lot of casual players who really want to do well. And they, they play one or two tournaments a year, maybe. And I see them in Atlantic city and I see them in Vegas and there's a lot of players like this and they're, they're really, they're, they're, they're trying to learn the game or, or their home game player really enjoys the game, but there's something really holding them back in the major events. And usually what's holding them back is they're scared to go broke because they don't play enough for these tournaments. So I wanted to write a book that just gives these players a bunch of rules to prevent them from doing anything too unreasonable at the table and then give themselves a real chance by playing essentially a tight, aggressive strategy which, where they're not folding too often either um, and give themselves a real chance to win money. So again, the book is called The Game Plan, How Casual Players Become Threats in No Limit Holding Tournaments. And I'm very pleased with how it turned out. I thought it was going to be easy to write when I started it. 
I was like, sure, I'll just tell the casual players what to do and they'll be fine. And then I started trying to come up with this list of rules for how to play No Limit Hold'em at a reasonable level. And it turns out the task I set for myself was much harder than I ever <laughs> um, So what I thought was gonna be like a 75 page book is turning into closer to 200 pages. Maybe it's not quite 200, but it's still designed for someone to be able to digest it in a period of a week or two if necessary, or even less um, if they wanna really cram. And go just pick, use the strategy of the game plan and give pros fits uh, in a major tournament. It's not gonna turn them into a pro, but it will give them a chance, which is really the point. Because a lot of these players um, are really coming in with strategies that are too poor to have any reasonable chance of success. That's what I wanted to change. I love it. We, we did talk about that a little bit offline as far as trying to have it, you know, have this episode released when people can get the book and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I think it's one of those books that, that I'd love to look at. Maybe that's one of the book studies that we do. We also do some of these community groups because what we're all about here at the rec, with Rec Poker is trying to learn the game in community. So we're kind of dialoguing and, you know, having a group of people. And it seems like that sounds like one of those books. I, maybe you would agree uh, that would be really suitable for a group of people to kind of study together. Absolutely. I think that would be fantastic. I think one of the things I like about the book is it could be of interest to anyone. It's, it's designed for casual players or beginning players if they want to jump in and not lose money right away. I think that's a big obstacle for some beginners is that they want to learn poker, but if they just start playing, they're getting crushed early on. They don't want to go through a period of where they're losing a bunch of money. And so one way to use the game plan if you're a beginner is, okay, you're not going to get crushed if you follow this strategy. And then as you learn more about poker, you can start moving away from the game plan as, as you find yourself ready to do so. But the point is you won't have this massive loss of bankroll leading up to that. Um, but also, if you're a more experienced player, it's an interesting idea, right? How, what, what rules would you give a beginner to not get destroyed in a limit hold'em tournament? Would you have written the rules the way I did? Would you have had, would you have had tried to have a beginner play a certain way in another situation? Would you have made it more complicated than I did or less complicated? Um, I don't know if you remember this, if you only came into poker a few years ago, but if you've seen um, David Sklansky's tournament poker book that he wrote in the early part of the century, he introduced something he called the system, which was kind of a even much more simpler way to do what I was trying, what I tried to do with the game plan, where he gave beginners, basically said, okay, just start moving all in, and these are the hands you're gonna move all in with, and that was the way they would play. They didn't have to know the rules, they didn't have to understand what beats what to play the system. Um, and the idea was if, if, you, if, if somehow you found yourself seated in a poker tournament, even though you don't play poker, which is not really realistic, but that was the thought experiment, <laughs> um, this, is, this was your best chance. I thought that was interesting. I kind of wanted to take that to a different level, which is, okay, you do know how to play poker. You don't know how to play it especially well. How can you have the best chance? That's, that's kind of the, the question I was giving myself. And I think it's interesting for anyone to think about, not just beginning players. So that, that's why I think my book could be very interesting for a discussion like you're describing. Yeah, that sounds great. I don't know if you want to give away any of the book. Cause can you give us an example kind of of one of those, uh, maybe out of context, it doesn't make sense, but any sort of uh, one of those rules that that's part of the book? Sure. Well, for example, um, while it's not a completely hard and fast rule, for the most part, I have beginners playing a razor fold or re-razor fold strategy before the flap. So the one thing a lot of beginners will do is they'll limp behind limpers or they'll cold call raises. And they don't understand that it's actually very hard to win too many pots after the flop if you were not the aggressor pre-flop, if you don't have the initiative. And when pros do it, 
they they have a good sense of why they're doing it and what they should be doing on the flop if they're not going to be the aggressor pre-flop. But when amateur players do it, basically they're just playing passively and then they get to the flop and if they don't hit, they fold. And you just can't make money in poker doing that because the person who is the aggressor is probably betting most of the time on the flop. So to protect amateurs from themselves, which is kind of like my idea behind the book, I basically just have them raising and re-raising and hardly ever flat calling with a few exceptions. The big blind is one exception. And occasionally I let them try to flat call with a set to try to, with a pair to try to flop a set. So, um, but aside from that, I pretty much, if someone raises and you're following the game plan, you should pretty much be re-raising or folding, not calling. And I think almost no beginner actually plays that way. And almost every beginner would do better if they did play that way. That's just one example of something you can find in the book. No, that's great. And I know now you're also doing, so you're doing a fair amount of writing. You're also doing a fair amount of coaching and you're, you're playing some, is that an accurate yeah, yeah I haven't been playing much, but I played the WPT Deep Stacks event this weekend at, at Parks, the main event. Parks is, um, as you probably know, outside Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, casino just outside of Philly. And they have um, a big stack series, I think five or six times a year that they have a series like this. And it's a pretty good value and it's a good structure. And I really enjoyed playing this tournament. I actually um, busted just outside the money in a kind of interesting situation. If you, if you did want to dive into that. Let's do so it. That was the, Let's do it. That was the first tournament I played in a while. Well, um, okay. So there are, there are six, just set the scene here. There are 60 players left. There are 47 places getting paid. Um, first place is about 116,000. And the, the min cash is about 2,500, which in context is about one and two thirds buy-ins it was a 1500 buy-in you know modulo the juice but it's like like a 1500 buy-in um and so in the hand in question i started the hand with 126,000. um the blinds are 3,000, 5,000 with the big blind anteing 5,000. um i opened from the hijack with jack 10 offsuit for 11,000. The button, who is the chip leader who had all the chips and who ended up winning, the just, just kept getting more and more chips as it turns out and ended up winning the tournament today. Um, this guy was, I mean, he won every showdown in this table that I played with him a day, uh, during, right, right before the, the money. And apparently he kept doing that after they got to the money. Every time I checked the scoreboard, he was just like 1 million, 1.5 million, 2 million, 3 million. It was nuts. Yeah, it was um, kind, of, kind of like your World Series runs. Yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> Um, but anyway, he calls on the button and the big blind calls. So we go to the flop with 41,000 in the middle. Um, and I have the jack of spades and the 10 of diamonds. Okay. The flop is the nine of spades, the eight of clubs and the five of spades. <laughs> so I have flopped two over cards an open-ended straight draw and a backdoor spade draw. I have 115,000 left after pre-flop action. The big blind checks. My first decision is whether to, to go for a check raise or whether to just bet out. And my thought process was there are, are I really don't want to let a free card come off and have both opponents still be in the hand when they could easily have a lot of hands they're going to fold right here and now. Um, I do want to, the argument for check raising is, well, then I can't put myself in as difficult a situation. If the chip leader bets, which he probably will a lot of the time, if I check, then I can just shove um and have the fold equity and not worry about having to call off and all in but 
I do risk him checking behind, which then lets both players possibly hit something on the turn that they will now call with, where I could have just won the pot on the flop. And so I basically decided that I would rather have my chance of winning the pot right now. I don't, I don't want to give up that opportunity. So that's why I decided to bet 18,000. The chip leader immediately shoves in a bunch of chips, enough to put either of us all in, um, who uh, has two opponents in the hand. And the big blind then folds. So now it's back to me, and I have 97,000 left after making this bet. And so if I call and win, I will have 271,000 in chips at the blinds of three and five. And we're about to go to three and six, by the way, just a few minutes. Um, And we're 13 players away from the money again. Um, If I fold, I will have 97,000 at this three, five, and soon to be three, six level. So I'm getting about pretty close to 1.8 to one on my money, slightly less, I think, but pretty close to it. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a extremely clear that if the, if, if the money was not a consideration, if we were not close to the bubble, this would be an automatic slam dunk call um, because I could easily have, be a favorite in this hand or at the very least have quite a bit of equity. Um, and so getting 1.8 to one as a favorite is not, is not a borderline spot in any way. It's a very clear call. What made it slightly complicating is that we were close to the money. And so I had to decide how, how much equity I really thought I had and then was it worth it to um, get my chips in. And a few things went to my mind. First of all, the, the way he put the chips in, and you never know about these things for certain when you're playing, but I've come to trust my intuition a fair bit over the years. And just sitting at the table and being there when he moved in and sitting across from him and looking at him, I was pretty confident what he had was like a nine, either a nine or uh, sevens or sixes. Uh, I did not think he flopped a set and I did not think he had something like nine, eight for top two. Those are of course possible hands. He probably would have played them similarly, but that's not the read I had sitting there. So that was one factor is that I felt pretty strongly that, all my outs were likely good. Um, my biggest worry was that he had either two sevens to take away some of my straight outs. And of course, also if I could hit the straight, he could fill up if he had two sevens. Or he had something like 10-9 or jack-9, which would tie up some of my jack and 10 outs. Um, but the most likely hand I thought for him was ace-nine. And, you know, I don't know if I was, maybe I'm being results-oriented, but I don't, I mean, that was part of my decision process. I really don't think so. Um, now, if he does have ace-nine without a spade, I'm actually a small favorite over him, and I don't think I can reasonably fold even 13 from the money, which, by the way, is not one from the money. Right. It's still 13 from the money where I'm going to have a pretty short stack, and I'm going to play like me afterwards. So there's a pretty decent chance I'm going to miss the money anyway. <laughs> which also went into my thing. If, if, we had been, if we had been one away from the money, I think I would have had to just shove this flop to make sure that I didn't put myself – I would have just overbet shoved and not had to think about this and risk bubbling, but making him have a hand to call to do this, not make some play like this with two sevens or whatever. Um, but 13 away from the money is still pretty far. And to be one of a bunch of short stacks who's definitely going to play more aggressively than the other short stacks, uh, I, I, that also factored into my thinking. So anyway, I ended up getting the chips in. My read was spot on. He had ace nine, and now he randomly didn't have a spade. He could have easily had ace nine with the spade which would have knocked down my equity a little bit. 
but he didn't. He had ace nine, no spade. So I actually, I actually was a small favorite. I had about 52% equity, um, which I was pretty pleased with. Obviously, I didn't hit or I wouldn't be telling you this story. But um, I, I was on the way home. I felt reasonably um, com comfortable with the decision. I, I, if I estimate my equity is around 50% or slightly lower, then I have to call 97 and I'm, I'd be worth about 135 or so in the pot. So we started starting stacks were 30,000. And so just in terms of like chips, converting chips to cash EV, that's, that's more than a buy-in. Um, now they're not worth their full value at that point because we're getting close to the money, but you have to discount it quite a bit to get to the point where it's not a good call because the other thing, the other calculation I did on the way home, and again, this is after the hand, not during the hand, was, okay, I'm clearly about 50% to bust if I play this hand. But I think I'm about 20% to bust before the money anyway if I have a short stack and we're mm. still third away. Mm -hmm. So I go from like 50% chance of that 2,500 min cash to an 80% chance, which only, which only results in um, a few hundred dollars difference in EV. So it's, it's like 1,250 value of, of the pure dollars value from busting right immediately versus around, I guess, um, 18, 1900, what would 80% of, yeah, it would be like seven, 700 bucks somewhere yeah, there. 2000, 2000 even. So, so yeah, it's like, um, $750. So that's like half a buy-in. And so I don't think, um, I don't think we can discount the value of chips, which were, if you know if they were purely linear, it would be worth like 1.2 buy-ins or something. I just don't see how that's discounted all the way down to half a buy-in in that situation. And so coming home, I was pretty pleased with the decision. And I also know that just the way I play tournaments, this is how I've played tournaments my whole life, which is that, and this is the period of tournaments my whole life where I've taken the most advantages just before the bubble. When people start playing too tight too quickly, trying to get into the money. It does make sense to do to play pretty tight if you're one or two away from the bubble and you can really just bump up to that 1.5 buy-ins or whatever immediately. But if you're still 13 people away and you could still get zero buy-ins pretty easily, it just doesn't make sense to me to pass up on a clearly massively plus chip EV situation like that. Whether I should have bet out and then allowed myself to get raised is another story. And I'm not entirely sure I like my decision to bet in the first place, but I do think once I bet that I made the right decision. So that's a long story of the strategy of this, my bust well, out hand. That's good. I, I have a couple, well, I have several questions. A couple of right. them, you know, one would be, you know, do you ever just, uh, you know, just check there hoping to, to see the draw because of the tournament situation would be, would be one. I mean, uh, you know, I know you like to be aggressive. The, the second one is, you know, as we're, as we're continuing to try to learn more and more about how to, how to, how we're thinking ahead of these things, I mean, when you put the 18K in, were you kind of already thinking of what you're going to do against a re-raise and just weren't expecting the big shove? Or kind of what was your process there when you put the 18K in? What were you thinking about as far as potential reactions from your opponents? Or did you just kind of expect to, to take it down or just get flatted? Uh, so to answer, to answer your first question, if I had been last to act, I would have given a lot more consideration to checking and to taking the free card because now I'm not so worried about um, getting – to the turn at all without having to um, put all my stack in because obviously I can just see the turn if I want to. Whereas if I, with a player behind me, even if I check, I might still have to get it all in before I see the turn or at least um, 
uh, at least face a bet from another opponent. Whereas I know that that's not going to happen. I, I probably would have bet anyway, but if I had been last to act, I might've given a little more consideration to checking uh, to do what you're saying, which is to, to take the free card. Because um, you just think it is a, there's a super high likelihood that the button was going to bet there. I think if I check, he's going to bet a yeah. lot of his range. Yeah. I mean, he's the chip leader, so it does right. make sense. Now he wasn't playing like a wild maniac chip leader. So I do, I do think he checks back with stuff like, I don't know, ace queen, ace jack, uh, under pairs to the to the board, all things that I really want him to fold. And that's why I ultimately decided. Uh, yeah. Um, so, but having said that, sure, I would consider checking if I thought it it made sense. I mean, what you kind of want to do in these bubble situations or near bubble situations is you want to engineer the betting so that you're the one moving in if you can. Because now it's hard for someone else to call you because they don't want a bubble either. Now, it doesn't really affect the chip leader who doesn't care. He's not in danger of busting, but everyone else is. So for the most part, they don't want to risk a big portion of their stack um, any more than, than you do. And so if you can figure out a way to get all in first, you're usually at some kind of advantage. So a lot of times, yes, checking back would make sense for that reason, because then I could just, then one of those, and this is really the reason why I think being, being last to act might make more sense to check, which is that now I can more easily shove over my opponent's bet if they now his automatic bet comes on the turn instead of on the flop and now i can see what the turn card is and then decide whether i want to shove or now my hand might have gone way down in value after the turn and now i can decide to pass and it's, it's i have i can make my decision without committing as much money right away so i think in position i would have liked the the checking option more as it turns out i still consider checking for the exact reason i'm saying which is that the best way for me to go all in first for here is to go for the check raise. Um, and again, I think ultimately the reason I didn't was I didn't want to give, I wanted to let him fold all these better hands that might either decide to call on the turn if I showed weakness on the flop or could hit something on the turn and make them call. And, and the other factor was that I thought my, my draw, and to get to the second half of your question, I thought my draw was probably strong enough that if he decided to shove in, I could probably call with it. But I hadn't, I hadn't fully decided yet to answer your question. And it's partially because it was a little bit based on my read. If I thought, if I thought more, it more likely that he actually had flopped a straight or a set or something, um, I might have folded right there in the flop. But it really did not feel that way to me. I, I wish I could describe it better than that. It's not like I saw him flick his nose or something. Right? It's a weird <laughs> body language to tell like that. But it, it felt like ace-nine. It was ace-nine. And so I went with my calculation based on giving him something like that and you know i think for the most part i'm more or less okay with it because because i did have such a good draw but i think actually with um maybe with the slightly worse draw i might have been better off checking and then um either check raising all in or just deciding to check fold if i have a better read but i knew i couldn't possibly check fold a hand this good a draw this good so um if i'm going to be check raising all in and, and that's the other thing is i I don't know how much, how often this guy was going to bet and then fold anyway, because like I said, I think with some of his weakest hands, he does just check back and he gets so many chips that I think if he bets and I shove, he probably is just calling. But those are good questions though. And those would have, I wouldn't really fault anyone for playing there. I wouldn't think those were like terrible plays or anything. I think I did definitely considered checking the flop, but I'm still not hundred percent convinced I played it correctly, but that's why I was thinking, that's why I played it the way I did that. No, I appreciate that. That's that just so helpful to kind of hear the thought process. That's what we're trying to, we're trying to learn the principles, you know, not, okay, exactly how do you play Jack-10 when there's two overs in a straight draw, but kind of the principles behind it. So that's why it's so helpful to have you kind of walk through the process of what you're thinking. I think the more we hear this 
sort of thinking from different people, get different perspectives. That just helps us learn the game a ton. And the last question I have, and you know, if other guys have questions, feel free, but uh, you know, a lot of the calculations that you were talking about kind of now saying, okay, well, there's a 20% chance I was going to lose the tournament and you know, whatever, kind of the, the process of thinking that through in terms of tournament equity and what's the right, you know, sort of ICM value play. Are you actually thinking about some of that during that decision or is that now kind of after the fact as you're driving home kind of doing doing that sort of a calculation right the, at the table i did not put a number on what are my chances of still busting before the money if i fold this hand i didn't get as far as putting a number on that when i was playing the hand i did put a number in as, as i was playing the hand of well i think i have about 50 percent equity against this range that, yeah. that's something I, I did think about while playing the hand um and what i did think about while playing the hand was there's a pretty decent, there's some kind of reasonable chance that I still bust before the money. Um, anyway, I didn't put a number on it. I still, I, that's a number I'm just making up by the way. It's just like my best. Right. Guess. For sure. I don't, yeah. Yeah. it might be higher. It might be lower than 20%, but that's in thinking about it, knowing that there were still 13 players to go, knowing that I was soon going to be on a roughly uh, 15 big blind stack and playing it aggressively because that's how I play. Um, I thought 20% seemed a reasonable guess um, right. for, for um, and it might even be higher because, you know, I had the chip leader at my table who's going to be more inclined to call me than at some other table. Like if I were at a table with a bunch of other 15 big blind stacks, my chances of cashing are much higher. But at this particular table, yeah, prob probably only an 80% chance of cashing if I fold. Um, and so, I mean, to answer your question, no, I, I didn't. I didn't quite calculate my chances of cashing at the table, or or guess. Calculate's the wrong word because it's not a calculation; it's just an estimate. Um, but I did factor in, like, okay, I'm an aggressive player. I'm never going to fold my way to the money anyway with thirteen with thirteen players still left to go. So I might as well take a massively plus chip EV spot. Now, having said that, if I had turned out I had like forty, I thought I had like forty percent equity getting one point eight to one there. I think I probably would have folded because now I'm like, well, I don't think, I don't think that earlier in the tournament, I would jump at a chance to take, to take 1.8 to one and a 40% shot. But when we're that close to the money, I would have said, okay, I'll take my pretty decent chance of cashing here instead of this, you know, plus chip EV spot, but not wildly plus chip EV spot. But when, when I calculated that, well, I think I'm 50% as a 1.8, getting 1.8 to one, I just didn't think I could pass it on. And we had a question that came up, uh, Eric Anderson, who's not actually on the video, but he's, uh, he's listening in. Uh, he just he said, you know, you estimated 50% equity. And he's, his question is just kind of a, a basic one. How did you learn to estimate equity? Like, um, sure. obviously, you can do all the off the work felt, you know, off the felt stuff and kind of really figure it out using calculators. But how did you learn how to estimate it kind of on the fly? Right. So some of your listeners are probably familiar with the rule of four, which says that on the flop, um, if you're going to get it all in, if you multiply your outs by four, you roughly get the percent chance you have of hitting one of those outs. So in this hand, I had eight outs for the open ender, six more outs for overcard. So that's 14 outs if they're all good. And then I did have the jack of spades, which also did factor into my thinking, which is a backdoor flush draw, which if it's good, that sort of counts as like one more out. So if I did have 15 clean outs, um, then I have, I have rule of four would say 60%. It starts breaking down right around there, so it's probably closer to, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's like 56% or something yeah. like that. Um, but I knew it wouldn't be that high because some of those outs 
first of all, they might not be, they might not all be good, but even if they are all good, your opponent, of course, if he has ace nine, could hit an ace or a nine. And some of those, some of those outs you could hit might not be good anymore. And so that's why I had to discount it a little bit. And that's why I was estimating off the cuff 50%. It turned out to be 52% when I went home and, and put the, put the numbers in, but that's also partially because he had the perfect hand for me. He had exactly what I wanted him to have. So it was a little higher than the number I was coming up with. If he did have 10, nine or Jack nine, and I lose three of my outs, then I'm in a little bit worse shape. I'm probably closer to like 46 or something percent um, right. or even lower actually. So um, if he had had one of those hands, it might not have made as much sense. So for maybe for that reason, it's not quite, maybe it was not quite as clear. Although I still think even if the reason why I did end up calling is like, even if I'm off by a little bit on this 50%, um, it's still clearly plus TV from his chip standpoint by kind of a lot. And so I thought there was enough wiggle room there to justify calling, but the answer your, your listener's question or your panelist's question, um, I use the rule of four to get a baseline estimate. And I think about what hands I could hit that my opponent could hit or that I could hit that might not be good or my opponent can still improve and kind of adjust up or down. So, um, you know, and if you, if you look at enough of these simulations, you'll see these kind of like, 15 outs against an under pair and ends up being 50, exactly 50%. And I, I, I really kind of knew that I was looking, suspected strongly that I was looking at a situation kind of like that um, with, this, with this particular read I had. But um, that shouldn't be discounted either though, because if, if, you, if you range your opponent there to have, um, for example, sets over pairs um, and straights and stuff, you're, you're, gonna, you're not gonna end up wanting to call this hand. Um, and so you have to take into account your hand reading abilities, knowing that this player would never have flatted pre-flop with an overpair. This player um, would probably not have flatted pre-flop even with 7-6, uh, maybe suited. And then you have to develop the intuition, which only comes from playing, I think, which is that when you watch someone kind of shove a stack of chips in, like, was that really a set or a straight? Wouldn't a set or straight try to look a little more casual? Didn't right. that just kind of look like ace nine? And, it did. So, um, and that's all you really have to develop a feel for. That. I don't really know how to teach someone to do that except to play enough and watch someone who has a straight and watch someone who has ace nine and see how they do it differently. And, and then even, even factoring in all that, you have to try to avoid thinking too hard about the results because it's easy for me to say, oh, I knew what he had. He had ace nine. I didn't know. I had my best guess. It turned out to be right, but he didn't have to have that. He could have turned over a straighter or a bottom set. And I might've looked sillier and I might've been more wrong, quote unquote, but that's not really wrong. You're, you're only ever dealing in probabilities and in percentages. And, you know, if my read is right there 90% of the time, that's great. And if it's right, you know, 20% of the time, that's not so good, but that's going to look the same the times that he has ace nine. So you can't be too results oriented about hmm. this stuff. Well said. Uh, uh, Chris, Rob, Nels, any questions? Well, uh, yeah. Well, we're we're almost at time here. Actually, we're a little bit over time, Matt. For when I promise you, this is just so good. The time just flies by, uh, <laughs> chatting with you. Um, I'd love to just hear a little bit about the book. If you if you can give us another five minutes or so, uh, I guess unless there's more than one book, I'm aware of the one, the, the the making of a poker player, how an Ivy League math geek learned to play championship poker. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that and any other uh, things that you've got published. Oh, sure. Yeah. So. My first poker book, which was, came out a million years ago at this point, well, 14 years ago to be specific, um, I wrote it before I was any, well, any 
before I was known at all in the poker world, uh, I was just a writer who liked poker and wanted to try to write a poker book. And so I did, and it was about how someone would learn how to play poker, essentially. And then it turned out after I had written the book is when I made that final table at the Bellagio and suddenly I was on TV playing mm -hmm. poker. And so I had to add a final chapter to talk about that. And then all of a sudden it became like, oh, let's buy Matt Majors's book and learn how to be really good at poker. And so I'm pretty pleased with how that book turned out. I think it's a fun narrative and it, hopefully people will read it and get a lot of good memories. And if they're a beginner, learn some things. But I think some people expected it to be like this intense strategy book where I was talking about like teaching game theory essentially. And that, that's not what it is. And it wouldn't have made sense for it to be that when I wrote it because I wasn't someone anyone would listen to about that stuff. Um, but it's a fun book. It's a how-to slash memoir, as they say in the biz. And it's teaching poker through a story of how I learned how to play poker. And so meeting the people that I met that taught me how to play poker and playing the tournaments that I played and going through what I went through as a young player to eventually get to the point where I could compete in tournaments and have a chance to do reasonably well. Um, that's, that's where the book was supposed to end. And it turned out it ended like, and by the way, I did do really well shortly after I wrote this book. Um, but that's, that was, that's the making of a poker player. And I haven't read it in a while, but um, I am still proud of it. I have read it, read it enough times 15 years ago to know what's in there. <laughs> and uh, I'm grateful that it found an audience. I mean, thanks to the World Poker Tour appearance, I definitely um, sold more books than I think my publisher was expecting. And so I think um, it's something I look back on in my career. And I'm, I'm happy that, that's, that it started with not just a tournament, but with a book, because I've always wanted to be known as a writer and a poker player. And after the book came out, I got the gig at the, as a card player columnist. And I wrote more than 100 columns for card player magazine. And so I was able to have you know, a life as a poker writer and a poker player which was great. Now, having said all that, you asked about my writing. What I spent a lot of time doing over the years is writing novels. Um, I've written one that I tried to get an agent for a few years ago, and I've kind of shelved, and I'm working on another one now that I'm almost ready to send to agents again. Um, neither of them have been published. I won't say too, too much about them, but they have nothing to do with poker, and they're just something I'm passionate about doing for myself. And um, I think someday I would like to be known not just as a poker writer and a poker player, but as a novelist. But, you know, I have my whole life ahead of me to make that happen. And so hopefully someday it will. Well, now you can write about uh, being a father of a two-year-old and we weave those yes. things in, right? <laughs> oh man, that's a whole other thing. It, it does change things for, for sure. Well, I want to, I want to honor your time and I want to thank you for coming on any, I guess, any final words of wisdom to the rec poker nation, uh, things that we should be paying attention to uh, encouragement, anything that you want to share there? Well, definitely check out the game plan. Um, I'm proud of it. It's going to be out when you hear this. And so it's over on Amazon. Um, pick it up. And yeah, I would say just talk to as many good players as you can. This discussion on this podcast is great. I think um, the more you listen and absorb, the more the game will start to make sense. And there's, there aren't, there's no quick way to be a pro, but I think you can actually absorb a lot of information quickly and improve your game in leaps and bounds, especially when you're first starting out. That's the whole kind of point of the game plan. And I hope people read it. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Matt Matros. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on. Thanks to Eileen Sutton for connecting us. Uh, really appreciate it. This was really, really, really good stuff. Uh, sometimes I just want to be inside your brain and, and try to keep up with how your brain is functioning. Uh, that was super impressive, but uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, feel free to, we're going to hang on here a little bit so you can just kind of leave the meeting whenever you'd, you'd like. And we're just going to kind of, uh, continue okay. the conversation, but thank you very much. Thanks, Steve, for having me. I really appreciate it.
Yep. Take care. All right, Rob, Chris, Nels, uh, anybody that's, I guess, who's out here as well. Uh, Eric, John, thoughts? Just wish we could, I wish I could think that way when I'm <laughs> sitting at the poker table. What, what part was what you're hoping for? Well, you know, just um, the way he read the hand, you know, the way he read the situation. You know, I'd look at it and I'd go, damn, I don't, <laughs> do I really want to risk do I really want to risk my term of life right now on this draw? I mean, it's a great draw, yeah. but you know, he had a read that the guy had probably a hand like an ace nine, maybe a king nine or something like that, where his outs were live. But I, I don't know if I could have that same read because I see monsters under every bed. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, just, just to start that, you know, start they have 35 bigs and you're, getting close to the bubble do i ever do i open jack 10 in the cutoff there or not which is exactly what the good players want you but you, know, you got the big stack on your left and those sorts of things but i really liked his his thought about whether you know the percentage or all that kind of stuff but just i think we get into this mode of well okay if i if i lose i'm out you know without really thinking about yeah but if i if i fold there's still probably a good chance that I'm out too. You know what I mean? I think we, right. we sometimes don't really think that part of it through. Like there's no guarantee we're going to make the money if we fold here. Yeah. That's, that's what I meant with by his okay. train of thought. It wasn't just that particular hand and what the results might or might not be. But if he folded right there, he knew that the blinds going up, he's only going to have 15 big blinds left. Right. And now you're in that, you know, you're in that push fold mode with a huge chip stack. So how are you going to survive that? Like you said, if there was a bunch of 15 big blind stacks around him, it would be a much different situation. His odds of, of making the money would be much greater. But the fact that this guy could, could call on a whim with any, just about any two cards um, made it very difficult for him to yeah. be able to do that. And 20% of the field still had to be eliminated to make the money. Right. Like you said, it wasn't real close. Yeah, that was that was good. Uh, other thoughts from you, Rob, Chris, Snells? Um, I really appreciated the fact that he uh, talked about um, how much he thought about where he was going to be, you know, if he makes this fold. Um, there have been times when I have made that uh, that or gone through that thought process of. Well, if I fold this, you know, this is how many blinds I have left. And uh, is is it worth folding at this point? Um, you know, when, when we're this close to making the money, uh, what am I going to have to do to, you know, to continue on in this tournament? And there have been times when I've wondered if maybe I shouldn't even be considering that and just, you know, going with, with the flow of the game and, and where I think I'm at. Um, so I really like that he actually, you know, verbalized that for us. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we got a question from from John. Hey, John, too, if you want to just raise your hand if you want me to promote you to panelists for video and audio. But um, John had just asked in the chat uh, if we could review the Matthews talking about uh, kind of the rule of four. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really critical thing, and I'm glad that you, you asked it. It's good for clarification. So basically, if you can figure out how many outs uh, you think you have, so like he was on a he was on a jack ten with a what was it a nine eight five board, so 
he thinks that you know if a if a seven or a queen comes, uh, he's got the he's got a straight. He's got the nut straight, so he thinks he's got eight outs there. Any seven, any queen. He also is thinking if a jack or a ten come, he's probably good there because that would give him a, a higher pair than like an ace nine. So that's another six outs. There's three more tens, three more jacks. So he has um, at that point. Uh, what did I what did I say? Fourteen outs now. So so he has fourteen outs, and so there's the rule of two and the rule of four, uh, depending on how many cards are left to come. So if he were to get it all in there um and get called the way the math works is to figure out how much equity what's the chance of you winning the hand which is basically how much equity you have if there's two cards to come and you have 14 outs you multiply how many outs you have by four and that gets you 56 percent but it sort of you know falls apart a little bit but it's kind of a rough estimate so it basically tells you you're about a 50 percent chance to win that hand uh, the rule of two is just if there's one card to come so that's kind of how you think about that. For each card, you, you multiply by two. So hopefully that makes sense, John. Let me know in the chat if that didn't make sense. So if you have, if you have five outs and you get it all in on the flop, uh, the rule of four would say you have a 20% chance of winning. If you have 15 outs, uh, you'd have about a 60% chance of winning. So that's how the math kind of works. All right, any other, any other thoughts, comments? It's been a long night. I know the, the people that are listening to the podcast just think, oh, they just did a 45-minute podcast, and we've been, uh, <laughs> we've been on the air for quite a while uh, doing, doing several of these, these interviews tonight, uh, uh, trying to get ready for Vegas. So this one is actually probably going to release uh, actually like June 21st, so it'll be kind of late. Uh, we'll already have some good Vegas results. Hopefully, you know, one of us on this panel will have, will have a bracelet by then. So that's, that's kind of the hope. And the main event isn't until July, so. So, no, yeah, you don't have to worry about that. Rob's playing, no, see, so. Rob was on TV playing the main event. Rob, you got, you got quads on TV, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so and that's. Poker Go, anyway. Oh, Poker Go. Yeah, still, still TV. Yeah. I, still yeah. saw, I still saw a video yeah. of you, uh, you yes. with quads. Yes. <laughs> Pretty sweet. Eric, did you have anything to say? I know we just kind of got you into the panelist role. Anything uh, stand out from the night at all or anything you want to share or ask? Well, I like the way that they tied together between um, this this podcast and the last one where it, it all boiled down to position. His whole problem was he was out of position, and that was his whole dilemma. I, he said if I was in position, it would have been a lot easier to That's do. That's a really good point. And uh, – as far as that rule of two and four, the way I remember it is for, for every out you have, multiply by two, and then multiply that by how many cards are to come, if you only have one card to come or two cards to come. Yep. And where it breaks down is at nine outs. Um, for every out above nine, subtract the difference. So if you have 13 outs, 13 minus nine, you just subtract four from your percentage from your two and four calculation. Oh, okay, that's how the breakdown works. Okay. And that gets you pretty close. Okay, I know I just kind of tweak it down, but I'm never really sure how. Okay. Yeah, and I think, I think one, of the, one thing about the rule of two and the rule of four is, you know, that it really applies to an all-in situation, assuming you're calculating your outs correctly. I think, I think where a lot of people get – I think where a mistake is made a lot of times where people chasing draws, like where it's not an all-in situation. So say in this, in this spot right here where it's a 9-8-4 or 9-8-5 board, he has jack-10 and somebody bets, and so he's deciding, let's just say it's a different situation, but somebody bets and he's just deciding if he should call. 
Okay, so he thinks he has 14 outs. Well, there's two cards to come, right? So I got a 56% chance of hitting my card. Well, then the turn card comes, and then they bet again, and then he folds. Because, you know, really you only have a 28% chance of hitting your card on the turn. And I think that's one thing to remember about this is that rule of two and the rule of four, the rule of four really only applies if it's an all-in situation. So I see that all the time where people are thinking, oh, I have a 56%, you know, they do the rule of four, and they think I got a 56% chance to win this. So the guy bets three-quarters pot, and you think, well, I got the odds, so I'm going to call. And then you don't hit, and then the guy makes the same bet on the river, and you're like, or on the turn, and then you're like, well, I got to fold because now I only have a 28% chance of hitting. So I think that's just something to keep in mind uh, if you're just going to be calling the turn versus shipping it all in, or, or calling the flop versus shipping it all in, you only have a 28% chance of hitting it on the next one card. So I think that's the one caveat I'd put in there. All right, guys. Well, I think let's let's wrap it up there. Uh, thank you guys so much. I know a long night, but thanks for thanks for being part of this. I love having different questions bouncing off. Takes the pressure off me, but it's also, I think, just uh, I learn a ton just from the questions that you guys are asking. I love it because you're thinking differently than I am. So uh, thank you uh, for that. And we'll, uh, we'll touch base next week, I guess. Adios, everybody. See ya. See ya. Have a good night. Thanks, yep. guys. You guys too.